the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We do this show every weekend. Here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, booming out across the I-4 corridor. Once again, Alan Dempsey does our engineering. Uh, Andrew Herdliska uh, produces the show. And in the first half hour, Dr. Albert Moeller Jr. is here. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, author of We Cannot Be Silent with Thomas Nelson. Speaking truth to a culture, redefining sex, marriage, and the very meaning of right and wrong. Uh, Albert, great to talk to you, and I'm so glad we can visit. I am very glad to join with you, Pat. Tell me about your Florida roots, by the way. I was born in 1959 in Lakeland, so uh, that uh, that whole area is home to me, and uh, I guarantee you, from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, where we are very honored now to live, there are uh, certain weeks in the winter I think very longingly of, <laughs> uh, of of my homeland. How many years did you spend in Lakeland? Did you grow up there? I grew up there to age thirteen. My father was with public supermarkets for over forty years. No and kidding. Got transferred down to South Florida. So I went to high school in Pompano Beach. Well, we shop at Publix every week, uh, based in Lakeland, right? You know, uh, Pat, when I was uh, a 14-year-old, I started working for my dad. We worked in Publix for years, and I had little brothers. I was teaching them to, uh, to, to, to say the prayer, the blessing. We were all sharing it. They are about 10 years younger than I. And at one point, I was so accustomed to saying, thank you for shopping at Publix. Uh, shopping uh, is a pleasure. Uh, that, uh, uh, instead, I looked at a customer and said, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. <laughs> Before we plow into uh, your book, I am interested in the uh, seminary that you uh, oversee in Louisville. Um, what's the mission there, Albert? And, and tell me about the young people coming through there. Let me give you some really good news. Uh, this is a, a seminary that very unashamedly stands for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, and we have over 5,000 students uh, here at uh, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. We have well over 2,000 headed toward 2,500 young men studying for the pastorate. That's, mm. that's never happened mm. uh, in one place at one time with uh, with that many in the Master of Divinity degree. And and they're coming because they deeply love Christ, they love the Church, they love the Gospel, and uh, they want to take it to the ends of the earth. I can't imagine anything more exciting than that. Tell me about this book that you wrote, We Cannot Be Silent. What was your mission here? You know, my mission was try to, to do two things simultaneously. First of all, uh, to give those who have no understanding, uh, perhaps they're they're not Christians at all, or perhaps they're they're even antagonistic on the on the great moral revolution, to give them an argument they would at least have to deal with as to why Christians believe what we believe. And the second and uh, and probably larger reason was uh, to give Christians an intelligent uh, argument and understanding when it comes to, to what the Bible says about human sexuality and gender, and, and how this moral revolution has happened. There are ten uh, chapters in the book, and uh, let's get started, see what we can cover here. Uh, you open the book uh, with this title of a chapter, In the Wake of a Revolution. Uh, what does that mean? Well, you know, I think most of us can look around and tell that the world has changed. I think most Christians especially feel like, Somehow the world has changed right before our eyes. And by the way, it has. We're talking about moral change of a massive scale taking place in, in less than a generation. You know, Pat, I open it with a story from Central Florida, from Lakeland, where I can remember a hurricane when I was just a little boy. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we got up in the morning, uh, I went out with my grandfather to the front yard of the house, and there was a big boat in the front, in the front yard. Mm-hmm. 
Now, that had to be explained by something. And I, I just realized as a little boy, you know, while I slept, some massive storm went through, more massive than anything I had expected. And that's exactly what I think Christians have to understand about the moral revolution around us. It's bigger than, than, than most of us really take into account. Second topic. It didn't start with same-sex marriage. It didn't. You know, it really didn't. That's where many Christians think all of a sudden there's a moral revolution, and it showed up because the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage. And I try in that to point out that it's a, it is a moral revolution, but it started a long time before. And in an organized, traceable way, you can go back to the, especially the early decades of the 20th century. And, you know, before same-sex marriage was even a part of our vocabulary, we already had skyrocketing rates of adultery, of sex outside of marriage, of uh, heterosexual cohabitation. We had no-fault divorce that redefined marriage. All these things are a part of that revolution. And then I want you to talk about topic number three, from vice to virtue. How did the homosexual movement happen? Question mark. Well, you know, it was a movement, and it still is. I mean, when you look at the headlines almost every day, you'll see spokespersons for organizations, whether it's the Human Rights Campaign or something like that, that uh, that is an organized political unit. But how, how it happened was it was a concerted effort to get Hollywood on, on the side of those who are, uh, are pushing for the normalization of homosexuality. And, and in a famous book written by two activists back in the, uh, in the, the late 80s, early 90s, entitled After the Ball, they laid out a plan. And uh, it had a legal plan for how they were going to take the issue to the courts. It had a political plan for how they were going to build coalitions. It had a big cultural plan for how they were going to enlist Hollywood, right down to getting storylines written in for explicitly gay characters and all kinds of things. And, uh, and even a, a theological or religious strategy for how to get uh, some uh, liberal churches on their side. And, of course, they did. And, of course, another very important part of the strategy was uh, psychological and psychiatric, getting the American Psychological Association and the American Psychiatric Association to redefine homosexual behavior. And all that happened uh, basically by the time you get to, uh, to, to, I would say, about the year 2009-2010. And then the same-sex marriage issue broke. Are people born gay, and doesn't that mean God made them gay? Well, you know, we are born sinners, Pat. That's a biblical uh, mm-hmm. lesson for all of us. So every one of us is broken uh, when we're born in a, in a very, very real way. Uh, of course, only a minority experience that kind of homosexual uh, uh, attraction. But the, the reality is that we don't know what causes sexual orientation. There, there likely is, an, and, and, and this is true for people who really are thoughtful on both sides of the issue, it, it probably is a complex of issues. You know, it, it probably combines nature and nurture. But, you know, from a biblical viewpoint, it, it doesn't matter, because the Bible begins by telling us that, that we can't blame our birth for our moral situation uh, or our, our spiritual situation. Instead, uh, we have to be obedient to the Word of God. So the, the Bible simply says, nature, nurture, probably both. That's not the key question. My guest is Dr. R. Albert Moeller, Jr., president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, we're talking about his book, We Cannot Be Silent, The Impossible Possibility of Same-Sex Marriage. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that same-sex marriage is, and it still is, an impossibility from a biblical viewpoint. There's, there, there's no way to come up with marriage as God declares it in, uh, in Genesis chapter 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And, and, and that with a clear reproductive function, you find uh, in, uh, in Genesis 1, verse 28, that there's no way that by that biblical definition, uh, two men or two women can be married. So in that sense, it's, it's completely impossible. It, it was impossible before, it's impossible now, it will be impossible forever. But as a legal institution, well, the courts have ruled that same-sex marriage is now a legal institution. So I would say, you know, the best way for Christians to understand it is that biblically, same-sex marriage doesn't exist. Legally, right now, the Supreme Court has said that it does. So in that sense, we're just going to have to deal with it as an an impossible possibility. Here it is. Now, another topic, uh, Al, that's really been in the news here of late in North Carolina, the transgender revolution. Yes. Uh, What do you tell us here? 
Well, the first thing I want to say, Pat, is that this is a more complex and more difficult challenge even than uh, than the gay and lesbian issues. Because the gay and lesbian issues, Christians, thinking biblically, we can understand that in terms of behavioral issues. But when it comes to the transgender challenge, it's, it's a lot deeper than merely behavioral issues. And, you know, th- this reflects a confusion that can only be explained by Genesis 3, a, a confusion of, of what's so clear in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and that is that God created all human beings, male and female, in his image as male and female. That's a part of God's gift. So we're dealing with some really deep pastoral challenges here, and this is going to be a, a, a tremendous challenge to the Christian church. Al Moeller is our guest from Louisville. we got more with him right after these messages. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Maybe you've been walking with God for most of your life. Maybe you don't know much about Jesus or the Bible. Whatever your background, the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN invites you to join us each Sunday morning at 1045 for Reach Orlando, a Bible-centered church with a passion to love God, love people, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. Come study the Bible together with Pastor Adam Parsons and draw closer to God with Reach Orlando, Sunday morning at 1045 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is a special notice to all U.S. taxpayers. If you owe the IRS or state back taxes and cannot afford to pay them back, there's good news. Due to the financial hardship many are facing in today's economy, the IRS has made it easier to settle delinquent tax problems through a federal program called the Fresh Start Initiative. Qualifying for this program will resolve your tax problem and all collections and possibly reduce your back taxes by up to 90%. If you are facing wage garnishments, liens, bank levies, audits, or payroll taxes, It's not too late. Your circumstances may qualify you for this special program, protecting your savings and your assets. If you owe the IRS or state back taxes and cannot afford to pay them back, there's no need to worry anymore. Call the hotline at Victory Tax Solutions to see if you qualify and potentially save thousands. For this free information, call 800-417-9269. 800-417-9269. That's 800-417-9269. Do you have enough drinking water at home or work? throws at you. This is Florida, and you can never have enough good, wholesome drinking water on hand for meetings, family gatherings, even Mother Nature's wrath. Be prepared with Carolina Highland Mountain Spring Water, delivered directly to your home or business. Call now for their Be Prepared delivery special. Individual bottles, dispensers, and coolers. No contracts, no fees. Call 407-851-7144 online at carolinabottledwater.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Albert Moeller is with us from uh, Louisville. We're talking about his book, We Cannot Be Silent. Uh, now we get into the middle of your book, Al, and here's the, uh, the next topic. It's simply called The End of Marriage. Uh, what do you write here? Well, what I'm talking about is that marriage is uh, is really eclipsed in our society, and it and it's fast being further eclipsed as a as a legally and culturally significant institution. And it, as I said before, it didn't start with same sex marriage. It really started with two heterosexual trends. One was no fault divorce, because marriage was no longer defined as a lasting institution, but rather as just a temporary institution. And and then by rising rates of cohabitation and, and births outside of marriage, and so before you had anything called same-sex marriage, you had heterosexuals deciding that marriage was no longer the normative uh, institution for for having sex and having children. But then comes same-sex marriage, and you know, just even in the week we're having this conversation, the issue of polygamy is in the news. An opinion piece that was published at Bloomberg Business Week, of all things, mm. uh, saying that, uh, and, and by a professor of law at Harvard, saying the time has come to legalize polygamy. So by the time you redefine marriage by no-fault divorce, cohabitation, births outside of marriage, same-sex marriage, and, and then close on its heels polygamy, marriage really isn't all that important anymore. And uh, And that's why, by the way, Pat, you see there are some who are already saying, we need to take marriage out of the tax code because it's just too complex. We don't even know what marriage is anymore. In that sense, we're watching the eclipse of marriage right before our eyes. Mm. 
What does the Bible really have to say about sex? Another question here at the start of a chapter. You know, the Bible's got a lot to say about sex, but the first thing is that God did it in in terms of creating us as sexual beings for His glory. Right there in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, male and female, is uh, it's unabashedly sexual. You know, you have, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and become one flesh. And uh, God's not embarrassed to have said he made us sexual beings. But the Bible has one very clear message, and it's crystal clear, and that is that human sexual behavior is to be limited to the uh, the union of a man and a woman in the monogamous covenant of marriage. And uh, so the biblical sexual morality is easy to understand. Sex inside marriage is good. Sex outside marriage is the union of a man and a woman. Uh, can't be right. It can't be good. And and so by the time you deal with all that the Bible explicitly says, and uh, there are hundreds and hundreds of verses in Scripture about it, you have one consistent principle. Sex in marriage is to God's glory, by God's gift, and is good. Sex outside of marriage as the union of a man and a woman in any form is not only a big problem, the Bible uses the word sin for it explicitly. Now, Al, let's talk about religious liberty and the right to be Christian. What's that mean? Well, headlines just in uh, just about every day are bringing this to our attention. You know, does someone have to participate by legal coercion in a same-sex ceremony? Or uh, can a Christian college, for example, can, can it hire and admit students? And can it, uh, can it organize its student housing in accordance with Christian conviction? That was an issue raised by the Chief Justice of the United States in the hearings on the same-sex marriage case. And uh, now on the other side of that decision, we are already facing those challenges. And uh, the, the head-on collision between religious liberty and the sexual revolution, it's just inevitable. And frankly, it's already happening all around us. I want you to discuss now the uh, ninth topic, the compassion of truth, the church, and the challenge of the sexual revolution. Well, Pat, that, that's really, if anything, the most important uh, essay in the book, chapter in the book I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to this. You know, you have, uh, in a fallen world where all kinds of things are broken, you, you even hear Christians say, we need to balance truth with compassion, and we need to balance compassion with truth. But in a biblical worldview, truth is compassion, and compassion is truth. You know, the Bible wouldn't understand compassion that wasn't based in truth, uh, nor would it understand truth as anything less than compassionate. As a matter of fact, God has given us the truth, not because he dislikes us, but precisely because he loves us. And, uh, and so we need to understand that we must be always watchful that we don't separate truth and compassion, because they're not separated in God, and they're not separated in Scripture. Now, we do always have to watch our attitude, and we have to watch our voice, and we, 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 we have to watch our heart. But if, uh, if we show up as anything less than compassionate, then we're not, we're not living up to the truth. But if we show up with anything less than the truth, we're also not being compassionate. Christians need to think about that every single day. Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller, Jr., he's our guest from Louisville, Kentucky. The book is called We Cannot Be Silent, an important read, really. It's very important. I like the way you end the book, Al. Uh, it, it's simply called Hard Questions, and... Uh, Can I fire a few at you? Please, go at it. Since Jesus did not specifically address homosexuality, you write, how can we be certain he considers it sinful behavior? You know, I like that question uh, because uh, I get asked that question all the time, and I would simply say what Jesus says, even as he introduces the Sermon on the Mount, is that he affirms all of the Scriptures, all the Old Testament. And uh, and he says, you know, be forewarned, I haven't come to, to... to revoke any of them. Uh, rather, they shall stand eternally. And then, in a discussion in the, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked about marriage, and he makes very clear that we should know that from the beginning, God's plan for marriage was that it be the union of a man and a woman. So, Jesus never used the word homosexuality. Frankly, uh, that wasn't a vocabulary in the time, but he clearly stated that the entire law stands, that he stands behind the law, and furthermore, that uh, that marriage was always intended to be the union of a man and a woman, period. That's very helpful. Next one. More and more evangelicals are embracing same-sex unions. Isn't this an issue where we can agree to disagree? If not, why? Well, we can't agree to disagree uh, if we're going to be in church together. We're going to tell 
the gospel together. Because if you're endorsing same-sex marriage, you're saying that it's right. Whereas you have in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the very clear word from the Apostle Paul, that those who persist in sin, with some of those sins very explicitly mentioned, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we can't really know what the gospel of Christ is if we don't know the sin for which he made atonement. And uh, on the other hand, you, you, you can't have a local church that, uh, that does perform same-sex marriages and say, you've got a difference of opinion here. If it's performing same-sex marriages, it's endorsing same-sex marriage. You know, there really isn't any middle ground on this issue when you're establishing either law or, for that matter, uh, if you're establishing the practice of your church. You're, going to, you're either going to recognize and perform same-sex marriages or not. So, Al, what what does a pastor do in the case of a same-sex couple coming to him and saying, uh, we would like to have you marry us, sir, on this and such a date. Would you please hold the date on your calendar, and it would mean the world to us. Uh, well, so what does that pastor say? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. If the pastor's going to stand on, on Scripture, he's going to say that he cannot, by conviction and conscience, do that. And if he does that, he's basically renouncing Everything, if, if, if he says he believes the Bible, and, and if he says he believes the gospel, he's, he's renouncing those things in, uh, in, in doing what God has forbidden. You know, it's really interesting that uh, that language from, from marriage, it, it starts out in the Book of Common Prayer. We all know this language because just about everyone uses it. If anyone knows any reason why these two should not be lawfully wed, let him speak now or forever hold his peace. Well, that means if you're there at the wedding, much less performing the wedding, you are affirming it, and, uh, and, and that's something a, a, a biblically committed Christian can't do. And that, and that is one of the questions at the end of the book you raise. Should a Christian attend a same-sex wedding ceremony? And I think you just answered it. Well, let's put it this way. You can't go to a wedding without affirming what's taking place. That's what presence at a wedding means. And, uh, you know, when people try to say, well, I just go because of, I, I, but I'm not endorsing, I say, well, what are you going to do after the wedding? You're going to go up and hug them, and you're, you're going to share in their celebration. Otherwise, you wouldn't be at the wedding. And in so doing, you're endorsing same-sex marriage. Mm-hmm. So this is going to put us in a lot of awkward situations, Pat, and it already is. But uh, Christians are going to have to grow up and understand that's what's required of us in this generation. And then, Al, the local bakery, uh, a big yeah. wedding cake they want made, and the bakery says, you know, guys, uh, can't do it. Just go, go to Publix and, and, and get a wedding cake there. And suddenly you get a big ruckus going, right? Well, that's true, but there's a big difference between selling a cake to, to, to gay customers. I don't think anyone should have any problem with that. And, and on the other hand, being required to use artistry to, uh, to, to come up with messaging and, uh, and decorations that would, that would celebrate a same-sex marriage. And uh, that's just one of the inevitable collisions between religious liberty and the sexual revolution we see. Uh, so should Christian parents allow their children to play at the homes of children who have parents in a same-sex union. We're going to have to learn how to be good neighbors with a Great Commission imperative uh, as Christians living in a neighborhood. And I would simply say, look, you wouldn't allow your child to go play in the house of, uh, of any family without, uh, without considering who those parents are and whether or not you want your child in that home. Um, I, I'm going to say there's not a categorical answer, answer to that any more than there's a categorical answer to, uh, to, to any neighbor. But I would say we should seek to build relationships with those who are, uh, who are living in what we believe to be something other than marriage, even though they claim to be marriage, and, uh, and we, need to, uh, we need to reach out to them. We, we, we should allow our children to be friends with them. As, as I tell Christians, look, when you get to the Little League game and, and, and there's a same-sex couple and they're rooting for their boy, even as yours is on uh, the Little League team, go sit beside them. Don't go to the other side of the stands. We need to develop relationships out of Christian love. Aren't laws that give Christians the right to refuse goods and services to a same-sex couple for their wedding, aren't they similar to Jim Crow laws, you ask? Well, if indeed you're going to treat gay marriage and the whole spectrum of LGBT issues as a matter that's unrelated to behavior and only related to somehow to, uh, to, to status, an, an immutable characteristic like race, then it's fair to draw that conclusion. The problem is, even those who are pressing the moral revolution, they can't press that argument as far as they like to use it in public. 
and uh, it's not the same thing. Uh, it is not related to uh, to race or ethnicity, but rather to behavioral issues. And uh, I think just about anyone can understand that difference. They may want to deny it, but I, I think at root they really do understand it. And then here's another question you ask. Why should Christians care if same-sex couples marry? If they're unbelievers, why should Christians dictate their actions? Shouldn't we just worry about preaching the gospel? That's another one of those questions. Yeah, well, one of the problems, Pat, is that preaching the gospel means inevitably you're going to be talking about these things. Because you can't talk about the gospel without clearly identifying sin, which is the reason Christ came and, uh, and for which he died. He died for sinners and makes very clear what sin is. A part of the gospel is making our sin apparent to us so that we know of our need for Christ. So you can't really avoid these issues if you're going to teach and preach the gospel. At some point, you're going to have to redefine the sins for which Christ died. Uh, if you're going to somehow normalize uh, homosexuality or same-sex, same-sex marriage. The other thing is, is at a deeper level of, uh, of pastoral concern. We don't want to do anything, if we are biblically-minded Christians, that would solidify anyone in their sin. And, uh, and, and calling a relationship marriage, when we believe it fundamentally is not, is, uh, is by a biblical view not showing compassion to someone, but, but basically just uh, affirming them in confusion. I, I don't think that's what any Christian should want to do. Al, what has been the reaction to this book? Well, I'm glad to say there have been many, many Christians who have, uh, who have responded very thankfully to it, and, and, and uh, the author appreciates that. I think one of those interesting things has been the response from some secular media. Uh, who uh, Reporters have said, look, now at least we have a deeper understanding of what biblically-minded Christians believe. And, uh, and so I've been pleased with that, to have people who say, I disagree, but at least I now understand there's a, there's a big argument behind this. It's a matter of, of theological and biblical conviction. And then on the other hand, of course, there are those who have uh, who've read the book and don't like it at all. And, and that's what any author who's going to say anything uh, has to do is to run a risk. But in that case, I'm thankful to have started a conversation. Sometimes that's the most an author can do. My guest has been R. Albert Moeller, Jr., uh, he is the president, and a good one, folks. That school up in Louisville is a dandy. And uh, to get that report about the number of potential pastors coming out of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary is, is wonderful news. And uh, it's been a real joy, Al, to have you on. I've uh, admired you from afar. Loved love when you go on the national media. Uh, I always stop and say, this is going to be good. <laughs> this is going well, to be Pat, interesting. Thank you. I'm so thankful for you and your example and your voice. It means a lot to us, and I uh, just want you to know that. Thanks, Al. Uh, folks, we've got more coming up right after these messages. It's the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. Great half hour, Al. That was wonderful. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Hi, I'm Barbara Sandbeck, your host on Grace Notes, a 15-minute program that contains biblical teaching and a wide variety of music. Some of the subjects we address are why do we have trials and cultivating intimacy with God. You can listen right here on WTLN every Sunday at 2.45 p.m can't catch the whole broadcast visit our podcast on the web 24 7 on wtln.com so tune in you won't want to miss it Hi, this is Trish Bain with the Hope and Inspiration Call each and every Sunday night right here on WTLN. I've been inspired for 18 years with some amazing stories that I would now like to share with you each and every Sunday night. I've been educating people from around the world for the past 18 years on the Iridoid Ridge Noni, the original one. I invite you to join us right here at 830, and I want to thank you in advance. See you then. Don't miss Trish Bain and friends with hope and inspiration. Sunday nights at 830 right here on the new night. 94.9 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Just make it all stop for a few minutes. Help me, God. Three deadlines, four meetings. Uh, looks like another late night at the office. Help me, God. I keep coming to these to forget my loneliness. So why do I still feel so alone? Help me, God. Don't cry on me, please. Don't cry. Help me, God. 
We all have moments where we feel we've reached the end of our rope. Discover freedom from anxiety, stress, and fear when you spend time in God's Word. Crosswalk.com is here to help you start living a life filled with joy and peace. Choose to read the Bible and talk to God each day. Receive free daily devotionals from well-known pastors and authors, including Max Lucado, John Piper, Charles Stanley, James McDonald, and more. Find the inspiration and encouragement you need for each day sent right to your inbox. Sign up at Crosswalk.com. That's Crosswalk.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. Dr. Albert Moeller, our guest in the first half hour from Louisville, uh, talking about his book, We Cannot Be Silent. Uh, Dr. Stuart Eldridge is with us, board-certified pediatrician, author of Passionate Parenting, a guide to healthcare professionals, but we're going to eavesdrop. Stuart, great to talk to you. So nice of you to visit with us, and I want to, oh, talk, about, you. Want to talk about your book. Great. Thank you, Pat, and glad to be with you. What does passionate parenting mean? What's the definition there? The definition has to do with uh, being, when we're passionate about something, it's not that I'm just passionate about parenting, which I am, but that's not the motivation for the name of the book. The name of the book has to do with when we're passionate about something, we do three things. We will invest our time, our money, and our energy in being the best we can be at whatever we're passionate about. I know you have a connection with the Orlando Magic, um, and so if you use basketball for an idea, well, if you're really wanting to be good at it, then you spend a lot of time practicing, a lot of energy that you're going to be in that workout, and then you're going to spend some money um, doing uh, the training and things it needs. Well, people don't think about their parenting that way, but they really should. Uh, it takes time, money, and energy to be a good parent, an effective parent. And sometimes we think we can just have these little wonderful little human beings and then just uh, you know, wing this thing and it'll all work out. And that's not the way we should be looking at our parenting. Dr. Stuart Eldridge has over 20 years of in-the-trenches experience as a primary care pediatrician. He and his wife have taught parenting classes in their home and church for nearly 20 years. Uh, let's get started here uh, in detail. There are 12 uh, chapters, 12 topics. I'm going to set each one up for you, uh, Stuart, and then you teach us. Okay. Uh, number one, beware of unsolicited advice. Uh, what are you telling us there? Well, in in that chapter, that one's one of the few chapters. I mean, this book, even though it's written for healthcare professionals, any parent can benefit from the same teachings that's from the book. Sure. They would hope their healthcare professional would tell them. But that particular chapter had a lot to do with the sensitivity uh, of parenting. Uh, unlike a lot of things, we can talk to our patients and parents about a lot of sensitive issues. But when it comes to parenting, it's a fairly prideful area. There's a lot more sensitivity. And so I learned early on in my career that if you just launch into talking to a parent about what you are seeing in the office, that you may be seeing some parenting issues, you can quickly turn them off, uh, alienate uh, their thinking in this, and, and lose them. And so that chapter is really a... It's an advice to healthcare professionals just to, be, you know, you still want to talk about it if you see a child having a lot of problems in your room, but you have to learn to come at it in a way that's not offensive or threatening uh, to the parent because it's a it's a area that's sort of as a reflection on them. They, parents look at it and they think, if you know, if you say something negative about how their child's doing, then you're really coming at them. And so that was the reason for that chapter. Let's move to the next topic. You simply call it Family Foundation. Uh, what's that about? Well, the foundation of any good family in, uh, is the marriage. And so we spend a lot of time in that chapter talking about the family's foundation, which is the husband-wife relationship. Now, unfortunately, in our country, we really are struggling to some degree uh, with that area because we have, a, you know, it's close to a 50% divorce rate. Um but if we're going to maintain our, the strongest family we can, then we need to maintain our marriage and make it a priority in our family. And so we spend a lot of time talking about uh, that, that foundation being the most important foundation in the family and building on that and making sure it's a priority. And it also keeps us from becoming child-centered parents. 
which we don't want to do because that puts our child at the top of the, you know, in the, in the center of the family and sort of on a pedestal, and and we create all kinds of behavior problems and spoil behavior problems and things like that when we get into that kind of situation. Uh, now let's talk about what you call positive parenting. Well, what is positive parenting? Well, positive parenting is that we have a tendency, you know, it's easier to correct than it is to build up. And so we have a tendency to spend a lot of our time in our parenting in a negative sort of format where we we talk about don't do this, don't do that, correcting this instead of actually looking for opportunities where we see our children doing the right thing and we promote that and we build that up uh, so that we really speak, you know, life into the child and uh, and really look for the times when they're doing uh, the right thing. That's one of the things. And then the other positive parenting that I, I spend time talking about is what I call the four C's of parenting, uh, which is character and commitment, competence and consistency. And so we go through parents needing to walk their talk, to be, that's the character. Uh, consistency is that they really should be parenting their children the same, even though that seems, you know, obvious. It really doesn't happen if you happen to have a child that's more similar to you, and so you may show favoritism, and that's very damaging. And so those are, uh, and incompetence is just the same thing we just talked about, where you really just need to learn to be an effective parent. Commitment is meaning you're actually not letting everything else become more important. Your, you know, your hobbies, your sports, your job, um, those kind of things will keep you from doing that. So those are all positive parenting things that we do, as well as just trying to promote to our children you know, when they're doing things right, instead of just always just correcting, you know, wrong behavior. Dr. Stuart Eldridge is our guest. Parenting pearls of wisdom. Uh, What are they? Well, that all varies from age to age, and there's just a lot of things in the book that we talk about. Uh, In infants, you know, where people say, oh, you know, you're hugging your child too much, you spoil them. You really don't spoil a child. And so we we talk about sleep and, and good sleep. Uh, for the mom, you know, that's an important pearl of wisdom because if, they, if you're parenting, if you get tired, then your parenting is not going to be as effective. Uh, we talk about things from the toddler years where reading to your child and, and good nutrition. And then you know, we get into the little bit older child where we really want to make them feel a part of the family. So we talk about chores um, and how to do that, even in the young children, because they feel invested in the family. If you'll spend time doing that, not paying them for everything, we have tendency to put kids and, and uh, you know, just paying them, even though they aren't really doing anything specific in the family, give them, you know, an allowance and, you know, that doesn't teach them anything. So those kind of things we do, we get to the middle years and we talk about the golden rule and, you know, that's important because, you know, Jesus was other-oriented and we need to teach our children to be other-oriented. By nature, we're all kind of self-centered and uh, it takes work to, to think about others. And so, you know, that's another area that's important as far as a, uh, parenting points of wisdom to think about. And then we get to the teen years, and I talk about something called the creating a teen cave where we give them so many things they never come out of their room. And you really don't want to do that. You want to keep them invested in the family and active with the family and not have them isolate themselves. And those kind of things are very important in the young people, the teens. Let's talk now about winning the battle, sleep problems. Well, sleep problems is a really big issue for young people, and we've got so much, well, anxiety. It's a whole different topic in itself where we're having so much anxiety in our young people uh, that they're having trouble settling down sleep. Video games and televisions and overstimulation right before they go to bed, they're having trouble sleeping. And so we talk about how to get around some of that, and a lot of it has to do with just, you know, the, the, the video stuff that they're playing and the time they're spending on that is just really messing up their, their sleep problems. We also use... The time right before bed is a settling down and a family time uh, where they meet and talk and uh, slow down, uh, settle in, and then just have time as a, as a family or, you know, mom and dad with one-on-one with the children just to spend some time kind of catching up on how things are going. Uh, we talk about, we break it down into different age groups and so what's good for different age groups as far as sleep and uh, how much teens need because, you know, people, teens have a tendency to want to train this try this catch-up thing in the the weekends, and it just really doesn't work for them. You can't catch up on your sleep. You have to do well throughout the week if you're going to perform well. You know, school, work, those kind of things. And then let's talk, uh, Doctor, about winning the battle, mealtime dilemmas, you write. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the the mealtime is a really important family time, and we have a tendency 
to not require children to sit as a family and have a meal and share a meal together. I mean, we have a lot of couples that are so busy they don't even cook anymore. Uh, but the family meal time is very important. It's an opportunity to, again, uh, meet as a family, to catch up on the day, to strengthen the relationships, because if we don't do those things, then we just become sort of glorified taxi drivers as parents. We don't spend time investing in our children and letting the children invest in each other so that their relationships build. So when difficulties come in life, the family is still the strongest unit. And so mealtimes are very important for that. It's also a great time to teach about nutrition, um, you know, and, and eating healthy and not just grabbing a few bites and running and now, of course, fast food being just, you know, a nightmare as far as nutritional value goes. And, and so it's an opportunity when you have the mealtime isolated out that you can teach all those things and get the cell phones and the TVs away from the family table and just spend time together. Let's talk about choices. So many choices. Yeah, that's a, if I have to have, if I have a very short time with a family in my uh, office that's having trouble with a child and they bring it to me, uh, this is my to go to topic because too many choices and freedoms at too young of an age is just a huge problem for our young people. Uh, it creates behavior problems. It creates, you know, the spoiled child because they, you know, believe they're in charge. And so as a result of that, if you keep asking them everything in the form of a question, and our parents are kind of taught to do that in society nowadays where they just ask everything of the child, you know, what do you want to eat, what do you want to drink, what do you want to wear, uh, you know, and the children begin to believe they're in charge. Well, when you believe you're in charge and all of a sudden the parent requests you to do something, then you say no, and you have a temper tantrum if you don't get your way because you've been making the decisions all day long. And so too many choices at too young of an age creates a lot of behavior problems. And it creates a lot of anxiety. I mentioned earlier about we have lots of problems with our young people and anxiety. And if they think they're in charge and they've got to make all these decisions because this adult keeps asking me to make all these decisions, you know, that's very hard on a child. They just need to be left alone and be a child and let the parent make the decisions. Uh, and they've, parents have lost their power in the process of this. They've lost their ability to set boundaries and be the authority. And that's very unsettling for children. They need somebody to give them some rules and some boundaries. And we've quit doing that a lot in our family, and we've given up that power as parents. And that's just very unfortunate for our children. So it's it's a big chapter on on dealing with that and trying to you know regain that authority in your family so you can help your help your children to develop the right kind of you know behavior and um, decrease the anxiety. Doctor Stuart Eldridge is with us. Uh, from his uh, home in Floyd's Knobs, Indiana, Tate Publishing and Enterprises put the book out. Uh, we've now arrived at this topic, Doc, the overprivileged child, the overprotected child. So let's talk about that one. What's that all about? Well, we spend a couple of chapters on that because the overprivileged child... Um, yeah, you do. You do two ch- uh, chapters, eight and nine, or both? Yeah, go ahead. we got a lot yeah, to talk so- about here. Well, we have a. Uh, we're seeing a, there's just a lot of issues uh, nowadays related to uh, this overprotected uh, child, and um, what's happening is is that we're spending uh, so much time focusing on all the child's needs, and the overprotective parent is doing things what we call helicopter parenting, which is kind of a new parenting style in the last few decades, where you know they hover over everything. They don't want any disappointment. They don't want have any discomfort. They don't want them to fail at anything, and unfortunately, that's not real life. Uh, and if you don't learn to fail at the small things, then you develop a lot of problems when things don't go well. When you're a teenager and the schools don't, you know, cater to your every need, and the parent has, you know, made it feel like that all life functions around you, and so they get buffered and they get in this bubble that really is not realistic in in life, and so. Uh, we also create, you know, the overprivileged child. We think about, well, that's only the rich kids, and that's really not true. We give so many things to our children for no reason really at all uh, other than breathing and being a part of the family, and uh, they get this entitlement mentality, which is becoming a real issue in our country. I mean, this entitlement that I deserve something for nothing uh, is developing in our young people. Um, and so those two chapters are very important for people to understand that you can really create some problems for your young people if you just protect them from 
all disappointment as well at the same time, you just give them so many things that they don't really develop a good work ethic. They believe that's the way life is, that if I just want something, I should be able to get it. Um, and, and then we go out and in some cases, we actually develop what's called a, the kids develop some kind of psychopathic behavior where uh, they really believe that the rules don't pertain to them. My guest is Dr. Stuart Eldridge. We've got more with him from his home in Indiana right after these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. This is Dennis McKenzie for Families by Design. Strong families are designed by God. Do you want your family designed by God? For inspirational principles for today's families, listen to Families by Design with your host, Dr. Daniel Forbes and attorney Delton Chen. Families by Design airs every Sunday at 9 p.m. That's Families by Design on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Are you a responsible person who finds yourself growing deeper and deeper in credit card debt and you're not sure how to fix the problem? Then get ready for a toll-free number that will put you on a path to financial recovery. Trinity Debt Management is a nonprofit organization that will consolidate your accounts into one easy-to-manage monthly payment. Put a stop to late fees and over-limit charges and reduce your interest rates by as much as 60%. You'll save thousands and become debt-free for keeps. It's not a loan. It's a smart way to relieve your stress, meet your obligations, and preserve your self-respect. If your debt has you down, we should talk. Gather up your bills and call this toll-free number for a free, no-obligation debt analysis. 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. The heat is on, but you've been putting off updating your A.C. Well, the wait is over. Cool off now with another great, amazing radio deal. Only at AmazingRadioDeals.com. Yep, summer in Florida is going to be hot, but this deal is even hotter. With central air at half price. Just go to AmazingRadioDeals.com for all the details on half-price cooling from the area's best A.C. companies. Real half-price deals. No catch? No kidding. But don't wait. These complete A.C. home packages with installation will go fast. Just go to AmazingRadioDeals.com and make sure you tell a friend. Half-price cooling. Available only at AmazingRadioDeals.com. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. My guest is Dr. Stuart Eldridge. He's with us from Indiana talking about his book, Passionate Parenting. Let's get into this topic, uh, Stuart, if we can. Too Busy, the Crazy Household. Well, yeah, that's kind of a fun chapter because if you, we just we sort of look at what's going on in our families, and I think I mentioned earlier that you know sometimes parents can get themselves so busy that one they hurt their own marriage because they're just doing everything that the kids want to do, the children want to do, and they're going seven different directions all the time, and they're kind of becoming glorified taxi drivers, and they're just constantly on the move, and they don't spend time sitting at the table and having a dinner together and reconnecting and developing uh, the strength of the relationship so that the, you know, the identity of the family is what's important and that you do things together. And if you don't, then peer pressure just pulls the, you know, the children away from the family and become more important. And so the crazy household can create a situation where the family does not develop its their relationships well and strengthen their relationships over time. And so parents need to find ways to slow down and just do things as a family. And we give some suggestions in that chapter about how to do that, you know, game nights and things like that that can keep them working together um, as a family, uh, which will really benefit them down the road in the long run in the strengthening of the family. And so look at the big picture. We talk about what's happening with your family and how busy are you and is it too busy and it's, you know, not doing the kids and you any good. So that's what that chapter deals with. Uh, Here's an interesting one that we all face as parents. Sibling rivalry. He hit me. She looked at me funny. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. Sibling rivalry is, I mean, it's going to be there. It's inevitable. 
Okay, I mean, to think that we're never going to have sibling rivalry is, you know, just not a realistic thinking. The difference is, is, is that you work on creating a best friend thinking in your children, and that way you can mi- minimize some of that rivalry, even though it is inevitable how you handle it, teaching them that, you know, yes, you know, this is, you know, you may have problems, but this is the person that's going to know you best. And then we talk about two types of rivalry. There's conflict rivalry, and then there's competition rivalry, the two titles I give it. And conflict rivalry is much worse. It's the one that's kind of a selfish desire um, where you, you know, there's always going to be limited resources in a family. And so you have to, there's going to be conflict as a result of that. Uh, But that conflict, how it's handled, there's certain rules that you set up in the family, there's no hitting, certain things you non-negotiables, I call them. You don't hit in anger, you don't name call, you don't belittle your sibling. And those things are important when when it comes to conflict rivalry. You know, competition rivalry actually can be a good thing because sometimes being competitive a little bit against your sibling will help you get better at something that you want to do. So now you don't, you avoid things, you don't allow things like gloating or demeaning the other ones because they're not as good at something you did or if you win a game, how you handle that win and how you handle the loss. All those things are good teaching opportunities for parents when it comes to sibling rivalry and how it's handled. Uh, so that's what that chapter deals with. And now I want you to talk about meism versus weism. Well, that's kind of a summary chapter of the book, and because, uh, you know, as I said earlier, all of us are self-oriented, particularly when we're very young. It takes work. It takes good parenting uh, time for us to become other-oriented. Jesus was other-oriented, and that characteristic we want to develop in our children. And if we do all the things that we've talked about earlier that are in the book, we can teach them this understanding of weism where you think about others. It really helps long-term in relationships because when it's all about me, if you develop a meism mentality and you grow up doing that, uh, then any relationship is only going to be as good as it feeds your needs. And as soon as it doesn't, you're going on to the next relationship. So marriages are damaged, relationships at work are damaged, and the friendships are damaged because you don't have this ability to put others before yourself. It used to be a common thing in this country. I mean, after World War II, you know, we saw people sacrificing themselves, you know, a lot for the greater good. Um, But over time, that has changed in our thinking, and we have quit really working as well and putting that thought process of weism before meism in our children. Um, And this self-centered parenting, the child-centered parenting has created this meism mentality in our young people, I'm afraid, that you know, is really going to uh, hurt them in the long run and certainly damage relationships down the road. At the end of the book, Doc, you uh, lay out a little little paragraph called A Note of Reassurance. Uh, right. what, what are you telling your readers there? Well, I think, you know, and, and like I said, you know, with this book being at least oriented towards the healthcare professional, because I really believe that what you know, it used to be passed down from family to family. The parenting skills were passed down within generation to generation, and our, us as a healthcare profession did not need to be involved as much in parenting skills. That's no longer the case. And so, you know, when you read this book as a healthcare professional, you may think, oh, my gosh, I got so much to try and teach. There's no way I have time for that in the short time I have with each patient. And that's a true statement. So you have to do it in in small bites. You know, it's kind of like how you eat an elephant, you know, one bite at a time. And so... You, you know, it's a reassuring thing that, no, I don't sit there with every one of my patients and go through the entire book and teach them every time they come in the door for a health visit uh, all about, you know, what they should be doing as a parent. It's just over time, gradually, if you have the resources and the knowledge, then you can pass that knowledge on to parents uh, and help them in their parenting process. So that's more what the reassurance is about. Uh, and parents can probably take away that same reassurance that what we always say is parenting is a process. You're not going to get it all done, and you're not going to tell your child to do something one time, and all of a sudden it's never going to you know, happen again. It's not the way it is. Parenting is a process. It takes time, and it takes uh, continual work and consistency, and you'll get there. But you have to give yourself time to do that and your children time to learn. So, Doc, what is the number one health issue you see uh, on a day-to-day basis in your practice? 
Well, the bigger concern I'm seeing now, you know, I mean, obviously there's all kinds of the, you know, the pediatric, you know, illnesses, physical illnesses. My biggest concern that I'm seeing nowadays is the change in the behavior problems for children. That's been the biggest challenge and the biggest change over my 20 years that I've seen. I mean, our young people, just because uh, of the dysfunctioned family, the fractured families, we have divorce, we have drugs and alcohol, and the parenting skills are not like they used to be because the parents have trouble finding where to get good information from, and the Internet has all kinds of information, some good, some bad. It's hard to sift through what's good and bad. And so these behavior problems, and we give a name for everything. We have, you know, mood disorders and impulse control disorders and um, we call it, you know, even though it's basically a bad temper tantrum, uh, we have to give a name for everything nowadays. And uh, kids are on all kinds of medications that they never were on before, you know, for mental health problems. And it's just a growing problem uh, in our society and just a real concern. And I think if we can do better in our parenting and our teaching our parents how to do in their parenting, we can cut down a lot of that problem that we've seen in our offices, which is just growing exponentially, fortunately. Uh, do you have a final piece of advice for parents who want to do a good job as parents with their children? Well, I think uh, following those four C's we talked about and spending time realizing that to be a good parent, you have to you have to work at it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not going to come naturally. We don't. It's not born in our DNA just to be a good parent. You have to want to be a good parent, and you have to put some effort into being a good, effective parent. And so you just need to sort out what's good out there to use as a reference. There are a lot of good uh, sites and and training materials. Um, I think the book can be helpful, even though it's titled for healthcare professionals, parents can use it. There are other resources. Growing Families International has some wonderful stuff. I have some good friends, The Links, who have some good things called Parenting Made Practical. It's a good site for information. So there's a lot of material out there that's helpful for parents. They just have to want to invest the time and energy. I have a website that's called uh, teachpassionateparenting.com, and on that site I've got uh, a 10-part series on how to build strong families. Um, and so there's, there's information out there that I think can help parents. They just have to uh, sort through it. I also have a Facebook page called the same name as the, as the book, Passionate Parenting Academy Healthcare Professionals, and that same information is on there if you're a Facebook person. Well, Doc, I'm glad we could visit. Dr. Stuart Eldridge has been our guest, author of Passionate Parenting, Tate Publishing. Put the book out. Great to talk to you, Doc. All the best to you. Oh, you too, Pat. I enjoyed it, and thank you very much for having me. Uh, We'll be back for a wrap-up, folks, right after this. Uh, This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Join Richard Jordan, president of Grace School of the Bible, as he opens God's Word every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. If you missed the Sunday broadcast, you can listen and study along with Dr. Jordan 24-7 at WTLN.com by clicking on the podcast tab and then Riches of Grace. Riches of Grace, a service of Grace Impact Ministries at graceimpact.org. 5.30 Sunday on the new 94. Point nine FM and AM 950 WTLN. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. And now, here's Pat. I'm so glad you could join us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Dr. Albert Moeller Jr. was with us from Louisville. Uh, his best-selling book, We Cannot Be Silent. And then Dr. Stuart Eldridge joined us board-certified pediatrician, talking about passionate parenting. Uh, Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com, the Twitter page, Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, please check out my latest book. It's called Leadership Excellence. Uh, It's in bookstores now. Uh, Amazon.com, always a terrific way to order books. Leadership Excellence is the name of it, the seven qualities it takes to be a leader of excellence. We'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new 94.9 FM and AM 950 WTLN. Have a wonderful week ahead.
Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this same time on the intersection of faith and reason. The new 94.9 FM and AM 950. WTLN. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.